0: Welcome to Music and Medicine with
1: Dr. Carl Wern. On the first Sunday of each month at this time, Dr. Wern sues you with classical music and great ideas for living a more healthful life. Now, here is Music and Medicine with Dr. Wern. This is a show about a composer, and actually I have to admit my favorite composer, who has unparalleled talents and unparalleled ability to create music that I think is the epitome of art. I think there's a Chinese expression, uh, wonderful, that music is that which unifies. That sums up the music-making of Mozart, who wrote about 800 compositions in a short lifetime of 35 years. And there is not one piece that he wrote, even when he was four or five years old, that does not have charm attractiveness, and this sense of unity and peace that I think no other composer has ever been able to accomplish. There was a saying in the 19th century by the famous conductor Hans von Bülow, who said the three great composers in the history of music were Bach, Beethoven, and Brahms, the three B's, and that became a general tradition that everybody sort of followed. I think all these composers were great There's not one thing that I can criticize about them, but their process of music making was certainly more arduous than Mozart, who could compose a whole movement in 45 minutes. I mean, Brahms ripped up half of his compositions, and it took him months and sometimes years to create the final piece. Beethoven, as we mentioned last month, worked on the opening of the Beethoven 5th Symphony 300, 400 times. And Bach reworked a lot of his music, uh, whether it was the Bach B minor mass or a lot of his compositions. You know, they're wonderful, but they're, they were reworked often. Mozart did not have to do that. And later on, I will talk about why he is such a magical composer, musician, and really a, a magical person. So we're going to start off and we're going to talk about Mozart, about his birth. And he was born January 27th, and it is the month of January. And since he is the uh, epitome of perfection, I think it's appropriate. We all make New Year's resolutions that we want to make ourselves better and maybe even perfect. And we all fail at that, of course. But I think that the thing about Mozart is that he succeeded. And he succeeded by the time he was three or four. He was such a... Perfect specimen of a wonderful, charming child, and also a fabulous piano player, harpsichord player, organ player, and composing fantastic pieces at six or seven. His father took him around Europe starting about 1760. He was born January 27, 1756, and he charmed kings, queens for the next 10 or 12 years. And his father was able to uh, experience a very, very fine lifestyle because Leopold was paid huge amounts of money by kings, queens, given uh, jewels and all kinds of precious gold platters to show the thanks that people had for uh, Mozart and his ability to um, amaze people. He was called the prodigy of Europe in his time. He was examined by psychologists and doctors in France and England, and they were astounded that this person had such a memory beyond comprehension. For example, he went down to the Vatican in Italy, and he listened to a famous piece called the Allegre by an Italian composer that was so secretive the music was never allowed out of the Vatican, And after two experiences with his piece, Mozart could write out the whole piece from memory. For example, when he was four or five, he was at home and his father, who was a a fine violinist and a singer and wrote, actually the year of Mozart's birth, wrote a manual on how to play the violin that became quite well-known in Europe and was appreciated by people in many countries. But so Mozart's father brought some friends back, some musician friends, because Leopold was an assistant capital master in Salzburg. He brought a couple of string players and a horn player, and they started playing some chamber music, and Mozart just picked up a violin and started playing second violin. This is incredible. He had never touched the violin before, but he played reasonably well, and the, the first violinist stopped playing for a few minutes and just awestruck. How did he learn to play the piano, the harpsichord? Well, he had a sister. Nannerly was her nickname, and she was an older sister, four years older. And when she was about six or seven, she was being taught the harpsichord by Leopold. And Mozart would sit and watch his sister, who he was very close to for many years, and she was a very, very talented pianist. And he would start playing thirds, and he would start playing scales spontaneously. And his father looked at him when he was doing this, he was three or four. He just started playing the harpsichord, and he could read notes. His father taught him uh, some basic theory in harmony. Mozart quickly outpaced his father. His father, who was a minor composer, he wrote actually a few symphonies, he was in such awe and respect he stopped composing when mozart was 7 or 8 because he felt that there was no point in him composing this is very analogous to something that happened in the in the late 19th century when picasso his father who was a uh, a mild talent as a painter he saw his son painting 8 9 10 and by the time picasso was 11 his father stopped painting as well there's so many stories about mozart that amaze and, and create wonder you could spend a whole evening reading about this. Probably the most important part of his travels was when he went to England in 1764 and he entertained the king. He was charmed. They spent two or three months there initially and then they stayed another few months later in the year and he had a very interesting experience because Johann Christoph Bach, called the London Bach, who was the last male child of uh, Johann Sebastian Bach, was very famous Johann Christoph Bach took Mozart under his wing and and gave him two- or three-hour lessons every day for months. It's clear that that had a big influence on uh, Mozart. It's very interesting that Mozart did not discover Johann Sebastian Bach in his writing until he was in his late 20s. There's a famous story. He was at a um, a church in Germany, a relatively well-known musician who had known Bach, He had uh, the whole series of motets that Bach had written, and Mozart looked at them for about two or three hours. He said to the fellow musician, he said, I can learn from this. I mean, Mozart had everything else. He is certainly, I think, the greatest musician and the greatest uh, composer in the history of the world. And he is because he has this unity of ideas in the composition. Everything is um, spontaneous. It's been said by many musicians, for example, Skadisov Richter. And The Unexpected Surprise is one of the great motivators, compositions to create interest by the audience. I'd love to start off this uh, presentation of Mozart with a wonderful piece. It's actually an opera, and I should mention that Mozart he, was a dramatic composer who loved drama, who was a practical joker, and, and he loved... Parties and he he was a connoisseur of life and pleasure. Uh, the marriage of Figaro is the story of how Figaro and Susanna, who are servants in in the court of almavera this count almavera they 're trying to get married, and the count is uh, married he 's sort of a philanderer and he 's trying to make it with Susanna before she gets married it 's a great confusion of love and behavior that 's a wonderful opera, but l- i 'm going to play. The Overture of the Marriage of Figaro that I played many times and in orchestra as performances as well as in opera performances, and it takes nimble figures to play the cello part as well, of course, the violin part, and we will play it in a performance by the, the exemplary conductor George Sell of the Cleveland Orchestra. Now we have the Marriage of Figaro performed by the Cleveland Orchestra and George Sell, who I think is one of the greatest conductors of Mozart and also in the history of music. The second piece on the program, and I might put a little aside, is that during last year's programs, we heard mostly a violin, cello, and uh, string music with piano. I think for the new year, we're going to introduce you to some other instruments that I particularly like, the bassoon and the clarinet. Mozart, when he was 18, wrote a wonderful bassoon concerto that is the most performed concerto for bassoon of any any concerto known to man. And actually, at every orchestra audition, you have to play this concerto to be evaluated if you can play with the orchestra. I've had a lot of experience with this bassoon concerto because, first of all, I played in the Aspen Festival Orchestra when Leonard Sharrow performed this piece in 1965, and he was the former first bassoon player of the NBC Symphony, and he was teaching in Indiana then. But more interesting is that I grew up in Queens at the United Nations International School, and I met Bobby Maxim, who was a classmate. And his father was Stephen Maxim, first bassoonist in the uh, Metropolitan Opera Orchestra, and a fabulous man, and uh, I used to eat dinner there at least once every couple of weeks because my mother worked late, and I got to know the family very well. And uh, the great thing about Stephen Maxim was that he was told stories about the Metropolitan Opera, but one of the most interesting stories was how he started to play the bassoon. And he was born in 1921-22, He went to school in the elementary school, and that time in the fourth or fifth grade, New York City provided the elementary school students with instruments to to get introduced to music. And lo and behold, when it came his turn to pick an instrument, the only instrument left to be picked was the bassoon. And so he picked it up, and then he became probably the most uh, revered bassoon player in the world, taught at Juilliard, Hart School of Music later on, and I knew him in Hartford when he taught at the Hart School of Music. He would come up from New York City. But a fabulous, uh, fabulous person and a fabulous bassoon player. The name of this bassoonist, who I've heard in person, who is recorded extensively, Klaus Thurman. He plays the bassoon concertos with Vivaldi. This performance is certainly exemplary. We're going to play the Rondo, which is the last movement. Wonderful bassoon concerto in B-flat by Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. we're going to talk about yeah. Mozart and his wonderful violin pieces. At 19, Mozart wrote five violin concertos that are standard parts of the repertory considered some of the greatest violin concertos of all time, but he also wrote a lot of violin sonatas between the ages of seven and nine. and then he wrote about another 15 and one of the greatest ones is an E minor and it's a magnificent sonata. One of the great things about this about Mozart sonatas is that we all know that um, Mozart makes you smarter. And if you read the Walter Isaacson book about Einstein, For two years when Einstein was trying to create the basis for the theory of relativity, he spent at least three or four times a week playing for an hour or two Mozart's sonatas to help him to facilitate his understanding and creation of the theory of relativity. And sometimes Einstein practiced it so much his fingers got sore. Actually, uh, Einstein attributed very helpful in his creation an understanding of the theory of relativity that he won the Nobel Prize for in 1921. We are going to perform for you now a Mozart sonata, one of my favorites that I play. It's a transcription for cello, and I'm going to play you the second movement. It's a two-movement sonata, and the second movement is particularly beautiful because of a minuetto in the middle. There's a wonderful section in E major. It's so beautiful that the famous uh, musicologist Alfred Eisenstein, no relation to Albert Einstein, who uh, said that this portion of the movement is a little piece of bliss. Now I will perform for you the wonderful sonata in E minor, the last movement, minuetto, and the piano player is uh, Robert Copelson and I am the cellist, Dr. Carl Wern. We'll take a short segue into um, the medicine portion of this program. We're going to talk about an affliction that Mozart had that eventually killed him. Mozart developed probably a half a dozen episodes of rheumatic fever in his lifetime. And the origin of rheumatic fever, which is an inflammatory disease that involves the joints, the skin, the heart, is a disease that has been present, known for the last three or four hundred years, And it's due to an infection from group A streptococcus. And it took us a long time to figure out how a throat infection can subsequently cause diseases of the joints, the heart, the skin, the brain. And the reason is that certain types of group A streptococcus have an M protein, it's called. And it's very similar to the makeup of muscles in the heart cartilage in the tissues of the joints, and also cartilage in the valves of the heart, particularly aortic and mitral valve. And after a streptococcal infection, there's often an immunological response, particularly in certain people who have a certain overabundant immune system and also have a tendency to other immune diseases like lupus and rheumatoid arthritis, and Sjogren syndrome. The M protein is recognized by the T4 lymphocytes, and the T4 lymphocytes takes this M protein on a cascade to other T lymphocytes, to plasma cells, and an inflammatory response develops that uh, involves many organs in the body. And this can recur over the years due to recurrent strep infections can trigger a bout of rheumatic fever. We have preventive measures now, treat people with long term, low dose penicillin. Certainly, we have treatment for strep throat, the cause of rheumatic fever. The strep throat is very common, and I think uh, it's good I'm talking about strep throat now because it's a disease more common in the winter. And actually, there's just a news report from uh, England that 12 people have died of streptococcus uh, infection. It's group A, and usually does not kill people, but it can especially if they have underlying problems. And it's characterized by a very painful sore throat with exudates, swollen lymph nodes. You can get scarlet fever associated with strep throat where you have a rash. And sometimes it's very sneaky. My, uh, my nephew, when he was young, had strep throat. All he had was nausea, vomiting, and fever. So it's a disease that presents itself half the time very characteristically, but it can be very surreptitious. And that's why people don't recognize the disease. And untreated, it's associated with about 4 or 5% people getting rheumatic fever, which is a disease you can recognize by involving uh, swelling of the joints. You get uh, heart disease. You can have acute heart failure. Uh you get uh nodes in, in the joints called ashro nodes, which is a collection of inflammatory tissue. You can have a skin rash called erythema marginatum that looks a little bit like Lyme disease with its red outer border and a central pallor it involves first of all the arms and the torso and then it goes to the legs. And you can get something called a Saint Vitus dance, where you have all kinds of involuntary motion of the muscles. And this was quite well known in the 16th, 17th century, but they didn't know what it was from. With the use of penicillin, that it's quite, uh, since the early 1970s, it's not very common in the United States to develop rheumatic fever after a strep infection. But it certainly still happens, particularly in areas of poverty. In Miami, there was a huge outbreak several years ago. And certainly in people who do not, access medical care in the whole world there's half a million cases of rheumatic fever every uh, year and it's very common in africa asia and the poor countries and the subsequent sequelae with the development of of mitral valve disease and the development of uh, aortic valve disease where there's insufficiency of the mitral valve and stenosis of the of the aortic valve stenosis means narrowing uh probably 50 million people in the world are afflicted, and a good portion of these people, as they grow older, will need valve transplants in order to survive. Well, Mozart uh, developed rheumatic fever a a number of times. It was the cause for his death over a two-week period late in the year in 1791, and after two weeks of misery, he succumbed on December 4th, 1791. Now, next selection, before Mozart died, and we'll go to 1784-85, when Mozart was um, renowned not only as a composer of operas, but he was renowned during this period between 1775 and 1785 in Vienna. He became incredibly famous and actually was very well paid for performing his piano concertos. One of his last piano concertos, he did 23 piano concertos, is the famous um, 20th in D minor. And this is uh, a fabulous, uh, I think, one of the greatest piano concertos in the history of the world. Beethoven performed this piano concerto when he introduced his first two piano concertos. There's a portion in the middle of the first movement, about 10 or 15 measures long, arpeggios going down and then scales going up, that I think Beethoven, who loved this piano concerto, inadvertently placed the same passage as the last part of his third piano concerto in C minor. And you can hear it, if you know the end of the first movement of the piano concerto in C minor, uh, you'll, you'll be astounded virtually the same notes and I think maybe even Beethoven didn't realize it. And now we will hear the fabulous Arthur Rubinstein playing the first movement of the incredible D minor concerto, the 20th piano concerto of Mozart, RCA Victor's Symphony. And this is a performance from the mid-1950s with Alfred Wallenstein who actually was a very fine cellist as well as a conductor. And they performed the first movement of the Mozart Piano Concerto, number 20, in D minor. last selection on this wonderful program that features the great composer Mozart is going to be his clarinet concerto. In October of 1791, he finished this piece and he never completed another piece. Remember, he was working on his requiem and that was not completed. And he had a a very good friend who played the clarinet and that he dedicated this piece to. And it is the, um, the greatest concerto ever written for clarinet. It's late Mozart so it has incredible complexity and I'd like to say it's appropriate that I talk about the clarinet and the clarinet concerto of Mozart because just a few weeks ago Stanley Drucker the uh, principal clarinet player in the New York Philharmonic from, he was in the Philharmonic from uh, 1949, 1958, and then Leonard Bernstein appointed him the principal clarinet player, but I saw him maybe 200 times. He's in the Guinness Book of Records for the longest performer in an orchestra of the clarinet in the history of the world, 50 years, and he just retired in 2009 at age 79, and I heard him Play Many, many concertos, not the Mozart concerto, but I'd like to dedicate this program and this piece to uh, Stanley Drucker. Another clarinet player that was a good friend of my first wife, Bob Crowley, who I got to know at the Eastman School of Music. I played concerts with him and played many, many chamber music evenings with Bob Crowley who was a fabulous clarinet player, first in the Oklahoma Symphony, then he was in the uh, the Montreal Symphony on a Charles Dutoit. He became the principal clarinet player. And there's a spectacular recording of Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue that starts out with a famous clarinet solo that you heard on an earlier program this year, the November program. And that recording with Charles Dutroit and the Montreal Symphony featuring Bob Crowley is acknowledged as the greatest uh, clarinet playing in an orchestra for this piece in the history of recorded music. And I'd like to also dedicate this performance to Bob Crowley, who died, unfortunately, uh, shortly after he retired from the Montreal Symphony, died of dementia, which is quite remarkable, since this man was one of the penultimate magicians and he could do all kinds of magic tricks, and he was very bright. To get dementia at age 64, 65 is just a tragedy. Now we'll hear the first movement of this great clarinet concerto, the last piece that Mozart ever completed, performed by Carl Louther, the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields, conducted by Sir Neville Mariner, who created one of the great chamber orchestras in the history of the world. This is the clarinet concerto, first movement of Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. This completes the classical music portion of this program to listen to all these Mozart pieces that I've heard many, many times in my life and performed in the orchestra of half of these pieces in my life as well. I'd like to end the uh, program with our usual popular music. And we've just experienced a blizzard that affected 200 million people in the United States. And it's been a very tough go. There's been over 40 or 50 people that have died of uh, hypothermia, who have died in all kinds of accidents and falling into ponds that are freezing, terrible car accidents, uh, both on Route 80 in Ohio and other uh, highways in the United States. So I'd like to... uh, have a uh, wonderful popular music selection by Simon and Garfunkel and it's called Hazy Shade of Winter. Time,
2: time, time to See what's become of me While I looked around All my
0: possibilities I was so hard to please But look around Leaves of brown And the sky In your hand And look around He's a brown eye And the sky Is a hazy shade of winter I hang on to your hopes, My friend That's an easy thing to say But if your hopes should pass away Simply pretend That you can build them again Look around The grass is high Feels a it's the springtime of my life.
2: My seasons change with the scenery. Weaving time, and time oh, just and me. in a tapestry.
0: Won't you stop every help of me? At any convenient time. But I have my memberships while the noble manuscripts are unpublished. In my vodka and lime I look around Teens of brown now And the sky
1: It's been an exciting year the past year. I've done 12 programs, and I think it's particularly special because we featured probably the greatest composer and musician of all time, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. This is Dr. Carl Wern. See you next time on Music and Medicine. You have been listening to Music and Medicine with Dr. Carl Wern. Join us again at 5 p.m. on the first Sunday of every month right here on WRAX 106.5 FM. If you would like to hear the program again, visit BedfordCountyRadio.com, Facebook, or find it on your favorite podcast, including Spotify, Google, Amazon, or Apple. See you next time on Music and Medicine.